thank you for joining me for episode 11 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, we're going to discuss Dwayne Eddy's Rebel Rouser and one of the elements that stuck out to me that make this composition interesting. I'm also going to dig into the concept of voice leading and give you an overview of what that terminology means. From there, we're going to discuss a composition that I wrote called The Threats of Dusk and how I used a musical style called Serialism or 12-tone composition to conjure up some sci-fi horror-like tensions for it. Lastly, we're going to dig into the JHS Bonsai pedal, which is a tube screamer circuit, but not only just a regular tube screamer circuit, they found a way to put all the different iterations of the Tube Screamer into one pedal. So this is a fantastic Tube Screamer circuit. I'm gonna give you some audio examples. We're gonna talk about using it with guitar and synth and some of the background of the Tube Screamer circuit. If you're digging this podcast, it would help me out if you give me a five-star rating on iTunes and leave a review. You can contact me at anatomyofguitartone.com if you want to discuss future episodes or have any questions about past episodes. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be releasing a new masterclass video about recording acoustic guitar. Now, some of the perspective behind this video was teaching a lot of people how to record acoustic instruments in less than optimal environments. Although the material also does work for people who have more elaborate studios that they're working out of. I cover everything from mic placement to the types of strings using type of guitar picks, using compression, using EQ on acoustic guitars. So it's not just about the microphone, the preamp. It's also about the way you're playing the instrument and the pick you're using and every element that culminates together to make a sound from the instrument. I feel like some engineers miss having a full rounded perspective of what makes the acoustic guitar sound the way it does or how to troubleshoot what isn't working about the sound. I wanted to give a full view of everything that makes up the sound of the acoustic guitar in order to assist everybody to troubleshoot and find out if they're having a hard time getting an acoustic sound, what to do to be able to correct that. I'll let everybody know when the video is released so you can check it out. Let's jump into the first topic. This week I was playing a song from Dwayne Eddy called Rebel Rouser. One thing that stuck out to me about it was the step modulation that was used every time we got through the form of the song. There are several different techniques that we can use to modulate a song. One of the most, I think, blunt ways to do it is something called step modulation. We've heard this in a lot of power ballads by Whitney Houston and singers of that ilk of the early to mid 90s where all of a sudden we'd reach probably close to the end of the song in the last chorus and all of a sudden the whole key signature of the song just moves up a half step and it just creates a rise, right? It's a very abrupt rise. Well, Dwayne Eddy did this with Rebel Rouser, which was released in the late 1950s and became sort of an anthemic guitar song for many guitarists for years to come. Dwayne Eddy was known for playing these big hollow body Gretsch guitars with Bigsby on it, a little bit of tremolo. And it's just a very classic, sort of westerny, twangy guitar sound played sometimes with the pick pretty close to the bridge. And I'm going to include a link to the video 
on my blog. If you go to anatomyofguitartone.com and then go in the menu and click on Anatomy of Tone, there will be a blog in there with me discussing step modulation and give you a link to listen to the song on YouTube. Often in pop songs, you'll hear it modulate just one time. So if they're using the step modulation, they use it at a point in the song where it needs to feel like it's rising up, like it just can't go any higher and all of a sudden, boom, we go up a little higher more and it has this excitement. What's interesting about the Dwayne Eddie song, Rebel Rouser, is that he keeps moving it up every section and he basically moves up a minor third eventually if, from start to finish. So meaning we start in the key E, then we do a step modulation to the key of F, then we do a step modulation to the key of F sharp, and then we do a step modulation till we get to the key of G. We're just stepping up and climbing. It's chromatic. Basically in the end, the desired effect was to move a minor third away from our original key. So E to G, that was our destination. And Dwayne just decided to go chromatically to get there. So you step modulation to chromatically walk up the key signatures until you got to the key of G, which is where you wanted to end up. It's a pretty cool technique and you don't hear it used in this manner too much. So it stuck out to me as maybe something to put in the back of my mind for a composition to just keep it moving. When you have a song that maybe is just like one part over and over again, you want to have some way to add some excitement into it. So I think this is a very simple form in the song, but then Dwayne used the step modulation to feel like it keeps going somewhere instead of it just being static on that E key signature the whole time. One small note worth making is that we're not going to use a five chord to set up our new key signature. If we're moving from the key of E to F, we're literally going to move from an E chord to an F chord. Some composers will use a five chord before the one chord of the new key to set it up. So if we're moving to the key of F, they might play a C7 chord to set up the F chord because our ears are going to hear that five to one resolution pretty clearly. But I think we're trying to avoid that with step modulation. It's meant to be blunt and abrupt. So we are literally moving from an E major chord straight up to an F major chord to hear that half step movement just click right up. talk about some more musical terminology. I want to discuss the term voice leading. Voice leading itself is a pretty deep topic that would be hard to cover fully in this podcast. I want to give you a basic idea of what it means. And I know you've probably heard this term before, but sometimes there's terms floating around that seem a little vague or we're uncertain of their exact meaning. Basically, voice leading means the linear progression of individual melodic lines, voices, or parts. To simplify that, it's a lot about how you move from one note or chord to the next. One thing that happens when we're learning a musical instrument is we get pretty locked into the first chord shapes that we learn. So if we need to move from a G chord to a C chord, we just go to one block position that we've learned. I feel like this especially happens to guitar players because we learn these block chords where we're playing all six strings or these are what some people call them cowboy chords in the first position where we're playing six strings at a time. And it's really hard to see how we might use voice leading when we're playing these big clunky shapes that we're just moving around a lot. There's nothing really wrong with the way that sounds. It's just more of an observation 
of why some guitarists struggle with understanding or implementing voice leading more so than say a, a piano player who might learn this and understand it a little before uh, some other instruments like guitarists or uh, mandolinists. Let me show you an example. I'm going to use a Hammond B3 to play a couple of chords and talk about how I might voice lead them. So if I'm playing a G to an F chord, if we think about it, G is a higher chord than F if we're thinking even just the alphabetical letters, right? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So in your mind, you would think, even if you play bar chords on the guitar, that G to F moves down like this. But it doesn't have to, even though, in theory, that chord is moving down the chord scale, the pitches can rise. So right here I'm playing GBD, Cheyenne, FAC, Cheyenne. It's good to just work out basic triads using this technique at first. So again, GBD, FAC, GBD. Now what if I wanted that F chord to sound like it was going higher rather than lower? Well, we can do that by going GBD. I'm going to move up and go ACF. GBD. So I'm using an inversion to play an F chord so it feels like melodically that chord is moving higher. So GBD, G, ACF, GBD. So we think about the top note, which sometimes people would refer to as the melody note, we can look at the movement that it's making. So in the GBD to the FAC triads, we have D, C, D movement, movement by a whole step. Now if we go GBD, A, C, F, GBD, our top melody note is going D, F, D, that's the melodic movement. One of the concepts behind voice leading is basically to be the most economical that you can be about your movements. And you can go in either direction. Sometimes the decision on the direction might be made by the proximity, meaning you want to move as little as possible to get to the next chord tone. The advantage to voice leading is that it allows you to sound more fluid with your chords and your melody lines as opposed to it feeling more herky-jerky where it's jumping all over the place. So if I'm playing a G to a D major chord, it's a, a bigger jump, so let's use that as an example. So that's a, that's a pretty big jump. Right now I'm just playing a G triad, G, B, D. I'm going to move to D, which is D, F sharp, A. These are root position chords. And sometimes that might be totally appropriate for what you're working on, but other times that's a big jump. And it might sound a little better if I do something like this. So I did GBD, F sharp AD, and back to GBD. This is close by. That's the root movement right there. And then the top note stays the same. So we only have two notes moving in that triad. 
the G and B move down F sharp and A and then back up. So as far as we're concerned, our ears just hear that being a little closer and, and a little smoother in its transition. And this also applies for developing melody lines or when you're improvising guitar solos. Sometimes people just tend to learn these boxes that they play in and they're always jump back down to the first note of the box they know and walk through it. So if you have a major pentatonic scale, you'll hear a lot of guitar players or instrumentalists do this. There's nothing wrong with that. There are definitely situations where that's perfectly appropriate. Although there might be other situations where jumping around to those different block positions just feels a little abrupt and blocky is the kind of term I would say, because you actually really hear it moving through those block shapes. And there are times where maybe it'd be nicer if it weaves in out of those different scales a little more elegantly. This time, I'm going to play using the D major pentatonic, the G major pentatonic, and the A major pentatonic still. But this time, when I'm going to transition between the two of them, I'm going to find the closest chord tone, and I'm going to use that for the transition. So example is, if I'm playing a D major pentatonic, and I need to transition to a G major pentatonic, I'm going to think about what's in that G major chord, GPT. I'm going to see if there's any of those notes in the D major pentatonic scale that match that I can start from to ease that transition. Same thing when I go to the A major pentatonic scale. Now, this doesn't just work for pentatonic scales. It also works for any mode that you're in or any scale. D major pentatonic. Now this would be over a D major chord. G major pentatonic over a G major chord. Major pentatonic, A major pentatonic over A major chord, D major pentatonic, G, D, A, D. So basically, I was just trying to find the smoothest connecting notes. Musicians that come from a classical composition background or a jazz background tend to be introduced to the principles of voice leading earlier than musicians that come from the rock realm. Maybe this is partly due to some of the folk style instruments like acoustic guitar that are related to rock music that don't voice lead as nicely because when we're playing six strings, uh, sometimes we have duplicate notes on those strings, meaning if we're playing a bar chord of G on the guitar, there's going to be more than one G in that shape, more than one D. It really makes it hard to move all six of those notes around in a voice leading manner and make it sound good. It's impossible. So guitarists that tend to voice lead a lot use smaller chords, like jazz musicians tend to use three or four note chords, only representing one note from the chord, which makes it easier to move between different inversions and voicings of the chords. In the classical realm, a lot of composers have spent a lot of time studying the principles of counterpoint. Now, counterpoint is really just designed to teach you the best voice leading practices. I've spent a lot of time studying counterpoint. I've read the Fuchs book. I've read Schoenberg's book on counterpoint, uh, Kennan's book on counterpoint. Um, the Jefferson book on counterpoint. There's a lot of different eras of counterpoint that we can look into and study to understand different techniques for voice leading. Uh, they're all very valuable. If it's something that you really want to get into, I recommend 
finding a teacher to study counterpoint with because it's really hard to read the uh, Joseph Fuchs book and really just be able to apply those exercises on your own. I tried several times before I found an amazing instructor, Mark Mamas, who uh, really helped me work through the exercises and really understand. If you're really into composing though, it is an extremely valuable skill to pick up. You don't have to feel like you need to learn counterpoint. Just understanding some of the basic principles of voice leading can really open up a world to you when you're jamming or improvising on stage. I think about this a lot when I'm playing with other musicians on stage. If there's two guitar players, I'm gonna play in some different positions of the guitar neck, but not just play in different positions of the guitar neck, I might change the way that my melody line is moving. So in other words, if they're moving their chords down from G to F, I might go in the opposite direction in a higher register of the neck. I might play a G to an F chord, but I might have the voice leading move higher so that there's contrasting movement between the two parts. So there's a lot we can think about here when we're developing an arrangement. We could think about the direction that each instrument is moving, either in contrary, parallel, or oblique motion. And these are terms that get brought up a lot in music theory with counterpoint. But if we think about it, parallel motion meaning you both move in the same direction, Direction, oblique motion meaning one stays in one place and the other one moves and contrary motion is you both move in opposite directions. I want to consider this when I'm writing parts. I don't just necessarily want everything to move in the same parallel movement. Sometimes it's nice to have some contrasting movement even if you're playing the same chords. been working on a composition called The Threats of Dawn, which is inspired by the sci-fi horror genre. And I used a style of music as inspiration that was called serialism, or is also referred to as 12-tone music. And I thought it would be cool to talk about this because I've been having some discussions with people and they've been asking how I may have approached some of my thinking in this composition and realized that not a lot of people are aware of the serialist movement that happened in the 20th century. I first found my way to serialism through the film score to the original Planet of the Apes, which was composed by Jerry Goldsmith. It was a 12-tone score. There weren't very many of those made and still haven't been many made, but there are elements and moments in film that composers are using serialist techniques. I based The Threats of Dusk all on the 12-tone system. Let's talk about what the serialist movement was or the 12-tone system is before I dig into a few moments of the threats of dusk to talk about what I was thinking about. Now, Arnold Schoenberg, who was a composer, a very important composer in the 20th century, is really thought of being the, uh, I'd say, the, the leader of the 12-tone movement. He wrote books about it and in some ways uh, collected the most materials to dig into the technique. Arnold Schoenberg is really the one who developed the technique and really turned it into a method to be used for composition. I happen to be really into Arnold Schoenberg's music. It's atonal and dissonant and some people 
can't really get into that style of music, but I find it fascinating. And I think there is definitely beauty in the dissonance. And the concept behind serialism is that all 12 notes of the musical scale have equal importance. Often in tonal music, there's a point that has a lot of importance, and that's usually like the one chord. We always resolve. Composing tonal music is all about resolution. So we have a lot of techniques that we do to create tension and resolve. Some of these techniques are psychologically predictable. As a listener, we hear them and expect them to happen. I think one thing that happened with the Romantic period is the idea of a lot of these cadences and tonal music it just was being done so much that people got burnt out on it. Much like what happened in the late 80s with a lot of the hair metal and pop metal grunge happened and in the 70s when punk music happened. I think after a while when something becomes really popular for a period of time, a rebellion starts and moves against that just to counter it. And that's in some ways really what the serialist movement was. It was a counter against the romantic period, which was so strongly tonal. People were just getting burnt out on that sound. And so Arnold Schoenberg really started experimenting a lot more with methods to keep from being tonal, to avoid giving away those cadences or those predictable movements that happen that you would recognize where the points of resolution would happen. So the point was that every single pitch is as valuable and those resolutions don't exist in a very traditional form. It turned into being a very mathematical system in order to be able to accomplish this because it turns out it's actually really incredibly hard to do it. It's really hard to just compose something and not have a tonal center to it or not create some sort of cadence or movement that makes you feel like it's tonal. It's just, it, it's almost impossible. So incredibly hard to truly avoid any sort of tonal centers. This is why Arnold Schoenberg designed this 12-tone system and the matrix and a bunch of techniques to ensure that you're going to avoid any means of, of creating traditional resolutions. Some may ask, why would you want to use a serialist system to stay atonal? Don't we want to hear resolution? And the answer to that is it really depends. Sometimes I feel like only playing tonal music is somewhat limiting in the sense that you have fewer colors to paint with. And it's not that they're not beautiful colors, they're fantastic colors. They don't really explain or represent every emotion that the human experiences. And I find that atonal music can expand the color palette for us to paint emotions with musically. There's a certain amount of otherworldliness or tension that can be created through the 12-tone system that can't be achieved with tonal methods. If we listen to Goldsmith's Planet of the Apes soundtrack, it's just filled with tons of tension and uneasiness. It almost seems to never let up and just keeps you living in that world. So it doesn't let you off the hook sonically. I think it's probably the strongest thing about that film. It was through Goldsmith that I found my way back to Schoenberg, Berg, Weyburn, many other atonal serialist composers. Serialist music never became super popular, although it was lived on the underground. In some ways, I liken it to 
or punk rock and grunge and a form of music that came around to shake things up a bit. I saw somebody make a comment about serialist music the other day, basically saying, well, they were so glad it only lasted for such a short period of time because it was such a mathematical way of creating music or blah, blah, blah. A whole lot of snobbery, which was kind of annoying because it was a very important movement and, and still is very viable today. Yes, it does take a certain amount of math to do it because we have to use a mathematical system to help us compose, to make sure that we're not repeating any notes, to make sure that every note has the same priority as the one before and the one after it. But even within that system and that limitation of using the mathematics, that doesn't mean that you can't make amazingly creative music. All forms of music have limitations. It's just which limitations do they have? So I really don't see the mathematical system of using the matrix, which is like a basically like a graph that we use that lays out all the orders of the notes. And we can't repeat a note in a scale before we play all the notes. So if I play a C note, I'm not gonna be able to play that C note again before I play every other note in the chromatic scale. So no repeated notes. That's kind of one of the rules of, of serialist music. And the reason we do that is because if you start repeating or going back to a note successively, then we start to feel a weight to that note. And that note is like, okay, we're living in C. If I go C, D, C, E, C, if I keep going back to that C note, yeah, we're feeling that weight push back to C. It feels like we have a tonal center there. But by avoiding that, our ears don't really know where a tonal center is because we don't have one. The 12-tone system obviously is a lot more complicated than this, but I'm just giving you a primer so I can talk a little bit about the way that I approached a few moments in my composition. As a composer, I find it's very beneficial to have a couple different ways to compose. I compose a ton of tonal music. I compose a lot of atonal music they counter each other. If I start to repeat myself a lot in one area, then I'll switch to a different genre or a different method of composing. Might do something that's in the minimalist genre if I'm feeling like the 12 tone or some of the more classical or romantic era style of music that I'm writing is getting too stagnated or you know I might write a punk song or a surf song or I like to jump around different genres. I find that I can continually be creative if I do that rather than if I'm just focusing on one genre where I tend to sometimes just start to spin my wheels and, and get burnt out. Let's talk about the threats of dusk. So the part I'm going to play is more about a conversation between some orchestral instruments. So there's going to be piano and flute and there should be some horns in there and percussion. I really feel like these instruments are almost having a dialogue with one another, but they're using the 12-tone system, so you're not hearing any repeated pitches. I wrote what was called a 12-tone row, so it's not like I just took a straight scale and serialized it, or just a chromatic scale, I should say. I actually built the 12 notes in a specific order, so I found a system that I like. I went through and chose the intervals I wanted to follow each other with until I used all 12 notes of the scale up. And that's kind of the special thing about the 12-tone system is designing what they call a row. Like, so writing great row where it can lead to interesting melodies or if you stack it can lead to interesting sonorities like chords. So what you're hearing in this is one row I used for the whole composition but not played at the same time on each instrument. Let's listen. 
when I wrote this, I wrote it on piano. And then I thought about the orchestrations. There's a lot being said in the orchestration there with the different personalities and colors that are stating it. So you can almost like close your eyes and imagine how many people are involved in the scene and, and maybe the dialogue between them and the tension. Obviously, this is a part of a much larger piece, which over time I'll talk about more in detail. I just wanted to introduce everybody to a little bit of the concept or the sounds of the 12 tone and serialist style. Here's another segment from later in the piece where you can hear me stacking notes from the 12 tone row to create some dissonant chords. you enjoyed that discussion on perhaps a style of music that you were unaware of before maybe can consider even if you don't write a lot of this music how some of these techniques can enhance the music that you do write you don't necessarily have to fully commit to doing completely atonal music but adapting some of these techniques can add more colors to the music that you do write In this week's pedal chemistry, we're going to listen to the JHS Bonsai Tube Screamer pedal. Josh Scott, owner and designer of JHS, has done a really wonderful job with this pedal. I always enjoy JHS's social media posts and uh, YouTube videos. Uh, Josh clearly has a deep interest and love for effects and has gathered and. and a mass amount of knowledge on the subject matter and also is very cool and humble into promoting other pedal companies is not just trying to be the king of the mountains clearly wants the industry and other pedal builders to prosper and do well which i think is really supportive and great to have in the community the bonsai is really interesting because josh figured out a way to put a whole variety of the different eras of the tube screamer pedal into one pedal. And the way they managed to do this was there's only some subtle variations from the different revisions of the circuit. So they were able to put a switch on there that would basically just swap in and out the components that changed over time, which was feasible to do in a small pedal because apparently the, there weren't that many components that changed and they were small enough to fit in a regular, almost like MXR. I mean, it's a little uh, taller than MXR style pedal, but basically that size of a uh, pedal. The differences between the different variations of the Tube Screamer circuit might be considered subtle, but they're not at the same time. I often find myself toggling between them depending on what amp I'm using to see which one pairs best. Let's talk a little bit about the Tube Screamer before we get into the JHS Bonsai version of it. The Tube Screamer came out in the late 70s and 
basically was an attempt to compete with the Boss OD1, which was their overdrive pedal. It was an attempt to create the sound of a tube amp playing really loud. So people wanted to get that sound of an amp being played very loud at, at more and more manageable volume. If you weren't playing stadiums, it was pretty hard to take a lot of the amps, which were fairly high wattage at that time, and be able to crank them up to get that sound. So people were trying to create this overdriven amp sound in a pedal. That resulted in the Boss OD1, the MXR Distortion Plus, and the Tube Screamer. The TS-808 would have been the first one from Ibanez to compete with this, which was, I believe, designed by Maxon originally. So the JHS Bonsai gives us a taste from the OD1. So there's the first notch on the selector switch is the OD1, which is the 1977 circuit. The description for this is that it's a brighter, somewhat higher gain mode that doesn't utilize the tone knob. So the tone knob is bypassed like it was on the original OD1 from 1977. The second position is going to give us the TS-808, which is based on 1979 circuit and a little more lower gain and it's got a little more of that mid bump. So one thing about Tube Screamers is that they're known for cutting off a little bit of low end and giving a nice mid-range boost. They also tend to be a little more compressed than I find a lot of tube amps are so there's this gentle soft compression that happens with the soft clipping the mid-range boost and then the truncation of a little bit of the low end this can really help focus your tone sometimes a lot of metal guitarists like to use this into their lead channel to focus their lead tone a little more so when they were doing a solo they'd kick this on so it just made it a lot more clear in the mix and cut out some of the low end Sometimes cutting out the low end isn't favorable when I use other pedals like the Effectrode tube drive, which to my ears leaves the low end wide open. The third option is the TS-9 on the Bonsai. This is a 1982 model. This is the one that most people associate Stevie Ray Vaughan with. In, in the description, it says it's a little brighter. And that is some of the variations that we're talking about here. Some just tend to be a little brighter or have a little more gain to them. Some might have a little more low end in them. It's not a huge span, but I will say that it does make a difference depending on the amp you're plugging into. If you plug into a twin reverb, you're really going to hear when there's more high-end presence. So some amps are more forgiving with it. There's definitely been times where I've been really glad I've had these options because whatever backline amp I ended up with was very sensitive to the high-end, and so I can just accordingly. They have an SML version on here, which came out in 85. They call this the metal version. A higher gain sound, more low-end. And then we have a TS-10. This is more like a low gain sound. The XR, this is like a Polish made version of the OD-1. It has a, apparently a, a unique drive character, slightly higher gain. We're not talking gobs of extra gain here, but there are some differences. The TS-7 came out in 1999. It's a late 90s overdrive, more gain, and has a little bit more low end in it. And then he included the Keeley mod as well, which was a popular mod to the TS-9 or the 808 pedals. And um, basically, it tightens up your tone and gives you less noise, uh, smoother mids, and highs and bass increased. It's nice having the option for the lower noise mode, because sometimes, depending on where you are and the circuitry, 
the noise can be a little bit overwhelming with any kind of pedal and amp and guitar. So to have a mode on here that you can kick on that you know is going to just reject more noise can be a positive if you end up in a situation where your environment is more noisy. And the last mode on it is the JHS Strong Mod that gives you a cleaner sound with a serious power boost. This, in a lot of ways, feels to me more like how some players just use the Tube Screamer as a boost pedal. So metal players will do this too, as I was saying, to focus their tone, but a lot of times they're not using much gain on the pedal at all. They're using output to push the amp harder and to tighten up the tone, but they're not actually using a lot of overdrive from the pedal. And you still get some of that EQ adjustment that's happening from the pedal and a little bit of the gentle compression, but not so much of the saturation. A lot of blues guitar players, blues rock guitar players will do this as well. So they're often not getting a ton of overdrive from the pedal, but using it almost like a clean boost, but it's a very colored clean boost. So it sounds very different than using something like the EP boost, which is based on the preamp in Echoplex delay units. It has a very different color. I sometimes really like to use a tube screamer with an amp that is overly clean. So a very high headroom amp, like a Meza Boogie, a Fender Twin Reverb. Nothing that I could really get too loud that is just very transient. Even setting it on a fairly clean mode, the Tube Screamer will add a little bit of a compression to it that is gentle and different than just using a regular compressor. So if I put just a compressor in my signal, it wouldn't compress in the same way that a Tube Screamer compresses. And sometimes I prefer the style of compression that the Tube Screamer does, even in a fairly clean setting, over that of a compressor, because it's also combined with the way that it affects the EQ curve of the guitar which rounds off some of the top end, bumps up some of the mids, kind of contains some of the low end. It just does a nice thing, especially to an amp that is scooped in the mid range. So if we're talking about the black panel era Fender amps, the twin reverb, the deluxe reverb, Princeton reverbs, super reverbs, concerts, anything like that, that was in that era uh, or the silver phase models, then they uh, tend to be more scooped in the mid range. So using a tube screamer to bring in some more of those mids can be very beneficial to warming up your sound a bit. I also sometimes like to use a tube screamer to mellow out the harshness or the brittleness from fuzz pedals. Uh, for instance, I really like pairing the Bonsai with the Zvex Fuzz Factory. So I have an earlier Fuzz Factory, not one of the ones that have more low end on it. And it could be pretty brash and, and harsh. And sometimes that, that's completely what you intend to do with it. It's meant to be like a saw and aggressive. There are other times I really want the spittiness that you can get by adjusting the gate on the Fuzz Factory, but I want the tonality to be rounded off a little bit, the same thing more mid-range, highs cut off, I mean, just to kind of contain it a little bit and take away some of the raspy buzziness of it. So placing a tube screamer after a fuzz pedal and running them in series sometimes can mellow out was a harsh sound and just round it off, which is something I like to do both live and in the studio. I get the benefits of the weirdness of the fuzz pedal and the overtones and the gating. And I also get the benefits of the roundness of the tonality from the tube screamer.
The Bonsai uses the same exact components used in the original Tube Screamer. So get the Bonsai, you're actually really using a, each of the original Tube Screamers. Just it happens to be in one pedal, which is pretty awesome. The Bonsai is true bypass, which the vintage models are not. So that's one advantage to using the JHS Bonsai over finding an old 808 or TS9 or something is that when it's in bypass mode, it's just not really going to weigh down your signal in the same way that the vintage circuits would. Let's listen to some examples using guitar. I'm going to start off using a Stratocaster into a Vox AC15. Let's hear what the core sound is like with no bonsai on. Play the same riff, but now I'm going to turn on the bonsai in the 808 mode. Now I'm going to use the Bonsai with the gain knob down, but the output knob up. So I'm hitting the front end of the Vox AC15 a little harder for some saturation. I'm going to pair the Bonsai with the JHS Muffletta, which they employed a very similar design where they went through the variations from the different big muffs and you can select which one you want to play. So I'm using the Muffletta first for a big muff saturated tone into the JHS Bonsai to tame some of the brashness from the Muffletta. The first version is going to be only the Muffletta, and then the second version of the same chord cycle is going to be paired with the Bonsai. So like stacking tube screamer circuits with other drive pedals, I'm going to use a Keeley DNM drive in combination with the GHS Bonsai. the JHS Bonsai with an ARP 2600M now, which is going to be post the spring reverb that is on the ARP 2600, just to pair the pedal in a way that is maybe a little less conventional. I think this is a really cool pairing because the ARP 2600 has some pretty massive low end on it. And the way that the tube screamer compresses and overdrives and cuts off the low end can be really cool for doing some very really haunting low note maybe horror-esque sci-fi sounds.
Okay, a continuation of my quest to be weird. I'm gonna set up an arpeggiator using the ASM Hydrosynth into the ARP 2600. I'm gonna be playing the filter on the ARP 2600M manually, and that's running into the JHS Bonsai, which I think is just doing really cool things to saturating the reverb. And this is more like a sound design application, but I think really cool to think about connecting effects to synthesizers to create an even like atonal or weird textures. to use a Sequential Circuits Profit 10 analog synthesizer into the JHS Bonsai into an Analog Man ARDX20 analog delay. There's a lot of cool sources that you can use the bonsai on. I've used it on a room mic for a drum kit. I've used it on a snare drum. I've used it on vocals. I've used it on bass guitar, even though a truncane's the low end. Sometimes it's cool to run that parallel with a DI bass. So I might take one feed of the bass, run it through the bonsai, and then the other feed leave the low end in and combine the two together to create a really cool sound. So it's a pretty universal pedal that can be used in a lot of different applications. Thank you for joining me for this episode Anatomy of Guitar Tone. If you're looking to inquire about taking any lessons, whether they're composition lessons, guitar, bass, drums, synth, music theory, you can reach me at anatomyofguitartone.com, a contact page, you can send me a message. As well, if you're looking to license any music or are interested in me scoring your film or TV show. See you next week.